pray together. Father, we bow before you this morning as our good and gracious King. We thank you that you're our God. You're, we belong to you. We can enjoy all the promises we sang about, strength for today and hope for tomorrow, new mercies every morning. Lord, we've tasted those blessings, and we're so thankful that you are so consistent in pouring them out day after day on us. Lord, as we come now, we pray you would help us to be still and know that you are God. We might be restless or fretting or distracted. Just pray you'd enable us by your spirit to hear what your word says to us, these encouraging words. Lord, that you would speak peace to our hearts. And I pray for anyone who is here who doesn't know you, doesn't have peace with you in Christ, that even today they would come to know you, put their hope and trust in Jesus alone, and have peace with you now and forever. It's in Jesus' mighty name we ask these things. Amen. Our text for today is connected to what we saw last Sunday and gives us some additional encouragements for facing persecution or other kinds of suffering. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 5. And the first word of the first verse is therefore or so, which tells us that what follows is connected to what has been said in the previous section. You may remember Peter just told us we should expect persecution. And that for suffering for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons, we are blessed, truly happy. And we also have the opportunity to honor God in that situation. And his conclusion in verse 19 was that all suffering is part of God's sovereign will. And so if we are suffering for the faith or in some other way, we can entrust our souls to the safekeeping of our faithful creator. And therefore, because those things are true... Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now you might be wondering, how does that go together with suffering? Well, you could say believers 
need church leaders to care for them during times of persecution and suffering, and that be true. But is there also an indirect encouragement from the way Peter describes the relationship of Christ and the church and the elders? And here's what I mean by an indirect encouragement. So last Sunday afternoon, I called a brother named Dan up in Minnesota. He's a church leader up there, and their church is going through some very challenging times. And I wanted to encourage him. So along with some other verses, I shared some phrases from Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. Christ will present to himself the church in all of her glory. Now, Dan could have said, that passage is addressed to husbands and wives. And he'd be right. Just like the first four verses of chapter 5 are addressed to elders. But Paul does not just say, husbands love your wives or wives submit to your husbands. He could have just left it at that. But he also includes a lot of truth about Christ and his relationship to his people, the church, that not only explains his instructions to husbands and wives, but can give us some encouragement about where we stand as his people because he's our Lord. So yes, the main point is the relationship between husbands and wives, but there's an indirect encouragement from all that is said about Christ and his church. And in a similar way, Peter could have just given some instructions to the elders, but he deliberately uses some imagery to express the relationship between Christ and his church that we see a number of other places in Scripture, namely the relationship of a shepherd to his sheep. Peter already used that kind of language back in chapter 2, verse 25. Why don't you turn back a page to that? Chapter 2, verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So he's already used that language. And Peter was there when Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Like many of us, Peter would know this 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who leads me in paths of righteousness, and he's the one who provides for me in green pastures and still waters. He's the one who protects me, even in the valley of the shadow of death. There's this beautiful language in the Bible about God is the shepherd, We're the sheep. Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. And verse 4 calls Jesus the chief shepherd. So as believers, we're his sheep. Verse 2 calls us the flock of God. Psalm 100, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. 
And one more verse for now in Romans 8. Remember, not exactly a verse that usually gets on a plaque. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So being a sheep (laughs) includes the idea of being helpless and defenseless and therefore totally dependent on our shepherd. So Tuesday night I was reading in Newton's letters and I came across this quote. I'm just going to change one word to make it fit what we're doing this morning. He who once bore our sins and carried our sorrows is seated upon a throne of glory and exercises all power in heaven and on earth. Thrones, principalities, and powers bow before him. Every event in the kingdom of providence and of grace is under his rule. His providence pervades and manages the whole. He overrules the rise and fall of nations and bends with an invincible energy and unerring wisdom all events so that their designs all concur in the accomplishment of his holy will. This is he who is the shepherd of his believing people. He originally had head. I'm changing it. This is he who is the shepherd of his believing people. How happy are they whom it is his good pleasure to bless. How safe are they whom whom he is engaged to protect. They shall not want, they need not fear. His eye is upon them in every situation. His ear is open to their prayers and his everlasting arms are under them for their sure support. So Jesus is the chief shepherd who's doing all that for his sheep. We're his sheep. And then the elders are called in verse 2 to shepherd the flock. You see something very similar to that in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus. So if you want to look at Acts 20 for a moment. Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So the direct application of the first four verses is for the elders of our church body. But there is an indirect encouragement for all of us in being reminded that Jesus is our shepherd. He's the guardian and overseer of our souls. And he has provided that there be elders as under shepherds to watch over our souls through the many dangers, snares on the way home to heaven. So back in First Peter chapter five, verse five and six, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace. To the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So all of us are called to be humble. We see similar instructions in other texts. Romans 12, 3. 
says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Or Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. But did you notice how Peter doesn't just call us to be humble, he gives two reasons why we should pursue humility. First is, God opposes or resists the proud. He is actively against proud people, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what we want. That's what we need, especially during times of suffering. We need grace. So think of Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Time of suffering is a time of need. Time of persecution is a time of need. We can find grace to help for that. James says something very similar in James chapter 4, verse 6. James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And one more, Proverbs 3, 34. Proverbs 3, 34. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. So there's this promise of grace, and it's held out to the humble. Ben Franklin said, God helps those who help themselves. An astonishing percent of Americans think that's from the Bible. It's in Poor Richard's Almanac. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who humble themselves, according to these verses. And then look at the first part of 6. Therefore, because God gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So Tom Schreiner writes, By humbling themselves, they will experience God's grace, since God pours out his favor on those who acknowledge their need of him. This humbling means that they are to accept the suffering God has ordained instead of resisting and chafing against their circumstances. And then Wayne Grudem says, among other things, this will involve bowing to God's wisdom, accepting the twists and turns of his providence, and entrusting all our concerns to him. In other words, this humbling of ourselves is recognizing, I'm not in charge. I'm not in control my life and what's happening. I'm not self-sufficient. I can't figure out things in my own wisdom. I can't handle them in my own strength. I am completely and continually dependent on God. 
And when we humble ourselves like that, God says he will exalt us or lift us up at the proper time. In other words, when his perfect wisdom decides is the right time for that to happen. And that might be in this life or it might be in the next life. But he decides when that change will happen. So the main point of these verses is humble yourselves before God and one another. But there's an indirect encouragement in knowing that that is the pathway to experiencing his grace to help now and being lifted up by him later. So after a couple indirect encouragements, and I get that maybe you're going, well, that wasn't like slam dunks. Just don't you have something a little more than that? And I, yes. Um, verse 7 is a very direct encouragement. So let's look at verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Most of us know what anxiety is and feels like. If you don't, I'll read to you from Webster's. It is a painful or apprehensive uneasiness of mind, usually over an impending or anticipated ill. Anxiety stresses anguished uncertainty or fear of misfortune. In other words, we're worried about something bad, that could or will happen in the future. One definition I came across in the early days of the whole COVID thing was this, imagining the future without Jesus in it. Anxiety is imagining the future and what's going to happen without Jesus in it. Peter's already told us to expect a fiery trial. To be ready for persecution, he's reminding us that all suffering for the faith or otherwise is all according to a wise, sovereign plan of God and under his control. And he anticipates that some of his readers then and now will hear that kind of stuff and feel nervous, if not anxious, about that. Suffering? Persecution? Fiery trial? How bad is it going to get? How long is it going to last? Are we going to be okay? So how do we respond when there's some kind of threat to our safety? Some kind of threat to our health? Kind of threat to something else that is important to us. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Maybe you know what that feels like. It's not fun. It's very real. It's a heavy burden. So what do we do with that? When there's something coming... That stirs up worry or anxiety or nervousness, whatever you want to call it. And verse 7 says, cast it on the Lord because he cares for you. Whatever we're anxious about, 
no matter how many things we're worried about or how overwhelming it all feels, the Lord graciously invites us to cast all of our anxieties on him. The word that's translated cast in that verse is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Luke 19.35 where it says, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw, cast, their coats on the colt. So some people took coats off their shoulders, put it on a donkey, on his back, and the colt is now carrying those coats, and they are no longer on the backs of the people who started with them. And in a similar way, we take our anxieties, our heavy burdens that we're trying to carry on our own shoulders, and we cast them on to the Lord, so that now he's the one carrying that load, not us. And look at the beautiful reason we can transfer all of our anxieties to the Lord. For or because he cares for you. Which means two things. He cares about you and he cares, takes care of you. So the Lord is not indifferent about us and our needs, and our anxieties. He is deeply concerned about us. Jerry Bridges wrote, He is not just there with you, he cares for you. His care is constant, not occasional or sporadic. His care is total. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. His care is sovereign. Nothing can touch you that he does not allow. His care is infinitely wise and good. So that in the words of John Newton, if it were possible for me to alter any part of his plan, I could only spoil it. So, the Lord really cares about us. He takes good care of us. He is willing and able to take responsibility for our well-being and all that concerns us. He is committed to looking after us. And if he is taking care of us, then there won't be anything that we need. So last week I got an email from Longlines telling me they're going to discontinue my email service. Now I'm a non-technical person, so that sounded very overwhelming. What do I do with that? So I shared it with Brittany, our church secretary, and she said, basically, I don't know if this is the exact quote, but I asked her again afterwards. She basically said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So at that point, I have a choice. Do I try to figure it out myself? Or do I trust that she's able to take care of it? Well, she told me her nickname at the bank was IT Brittany. No one has ever called me IT, Dave. (laughs) So is she able? The answer is yes. Then the second question would be, will she follow through? Because you can be able to do something and drop a ball, right? 
And again, the answer is yes, because I've already seen her start a track record of being dependable. So if the answer to both those questions, is she able and will she follow through, is yes, then I don't have to worry about it, and I don't. She fixed it. Maybe you got an email somehow from me (laughs) that says I, I have a new email. That's because I cast my care on Brittany and she took care of it in a much, much greater way. Think of what you're anxious about. Whatever it is that keeps you from getting a good night's sleep some nights or kind of haunts you throughout the day, just kind of distracts you, you don't want to go there, but your mind just goes there, worried about something. And you could paraphrase verse 7 as the Lord saying to you, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. And at that point, the same two questions come up. Is he able to do that? And the answer is, I hope you know, the answer is what? Yes! We saw in 419 last Sunday, he is the almighty creator. And remember, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, including This thing I'm worried about is not too hard for you to handle. So he is able. The other question is, is he going to follow through? Is he going to over-promise and under-deliver? Well, verse 19 said he's faithful. We sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness. Most of us have a track record of seeing God faithful over and over and over again for years. Which should strengthen our faith to trust that he's going to be following through on this thing too. He's established a track record of faithfulness so I can trust him to follow through on this promise in 5.7. He really will take care of me and take care of this situation so I don't have to worry about it. I can cast all of my anxieties on him, knowing he does all things well. And that's a fight of faith. It's not easy. We need God's grace (laughs) to be able to cast our burdens on him. We can ask him for it. So as we close this morning, there is something we should be anxious about until it's resolved in the right way. Namely, how can I be sure that things are okay between God and me and that he will welcome me into his heaven? I don't know how anybody could sleep at night until that one's settled. And settled with the right answers from the Bible and not just your own imagination. So we need to know, start off, that none of us start out with a good relationship with God. None of us. Isaiah 53, 6 says, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. So we've turned away from God. We've gotten ourselves on the wrong way. And so we need to turn around, turn back to God, get on the right path, which is called repentance. And we also turn away from self-reliance. This is part of humbling ourselves before God as if we could make things right somehow by what we can do. We can't. Go to Romans 9. Romans 9. Thirty-one and thirty-two, but it's talking about Gentiles having a righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though or as if it were by. Works And then in chapter 10, verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So what's going on here is, I want to be right. That's what righteousness is about. I want to be right in God's sight. I want to have right standing before him. I want to do the right thing. If you try to do that on your own, as if that's how it works, Romans 9 and 10 are saying, it doesn't work that way. It was never meant to be that way. It's only by faith. It's only by trusting in Jesus. He's the only way. He died as a substitute for sinners. Peter's told us that a couple times already in this very letter. Remember in chapter 2, Verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our sins on Jesus on the cross. Substitution. Or 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So he is taking the Penalty we deserve for our sins on himself so that we are receiving forgiveness. And he rose again from the dead to show he had accomplished everything necessary for sinners like us to be restored to a relationship with God. Listen to these words from Romans 10. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved. Saved simply means rescued. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. There's that right standing we're looking for. And with mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation, deliverance. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. For those of you who are already trusting in Jesus, one more word of encouragement for us this morning. Just talking to a brother this week at lunch. 
We just kind of talked about how the world is fallen and broken and it's getting crazier and scarier all the time. Maybe you've noticed that. And we might find ourselves, in light of that, feeling some anxiety. How is this story going to play out? How crazy is it going to get? How scary is it going to get? How long before the Lord comes back? So 5-7 would be a good place to start. When that starts creeping in and you start feeling that way, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But here's another promise. Remember what Jesus says in John 16.33. This is just something you could park on and memorize and meditate on and use to fight the fight of faith against anxiety. Acts 6, or John 16.33. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. That's the opposite of anxiety, isn't it? Peace. In the world, you have and will have tribulation. Just count on it. But, take heart, take courage, King James, be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. So we can rest in that. Yeah, it's getting crazy. We're not going to hide our head under the sand pretending that everything's fine. It's not. Jesus said we should expect it to be crazy. We're going to have tribulation. But we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be anxious. We can take heart and take courage and even be of good cheer, knowing that he has overcome the world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you that you care about us. When David looked at the stars at night, he said, what is man that you take thought of him or the son of man that you care about him? It's not just obvious that an infinite creator God would notice or care about little human beings down on this planet. But you do. You care enough about us to send your own son to die for us and rescue us from sin and death, to bring us into your family, to enjoy all the blessings of knowing you as our God including knowing you as our shepherd and having the privilege of casting our cares on you. And so, Lord, I pray for your anxious, burdened people, including myself. Lord, enable us to cast all that stuff on you. Rest in you. I pray again for anyone who isn't right with you because of Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would not have any rest in their heart until they settle this, that you would draw them to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing the goodness of
of Jesus. Stand together.